Two young women met when the University of Arizona made them roommates for their freshman year. Within three weeks, this random pairing had deadly consequences. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines, whether you are listening on a podcast app, the web, or YouTube. If you are listening on YouTube, there is a link in the description box where you can listen to all of the back podcast episodes. There are over 100 episodes. I just don't have the time or the energy or the focus to go back and convert all of the files and then upload them all. So they are there to listen to, but only ones going forward will be put up on YouTube. Unlike the vast majority of my recent episodes, this one isn't a listener suggestion. I actually found this one on the website Justice for Native People. It used to be called Justice for Native Women, and I have mentioned this website before, and I highly recommend going out to look at it. But they have recently expanded to include all genders, so now it's called Justice for Native People, even though the URL is the same, and I will leave it in the description box. I am going to give a pronunciation disclaimer. I know everybody is tired of me doing those, but in this case, I actually found zero videos covering this case. It happened in 2007, and while it got a lot of media coverage, none of those videos appear to be archived online. This is very common in that time frame. So I don't know how to pronounce all of the names. There is a name in here that I believe is an original one from the family because I cannot find anyone else online using it to at least use their pronunciation. So I really am making my best effort in pronouncing it correctly by looking up a Navajo phonics guide, and that's what I used to base my pronunciation on. So let's go ahead and get into it. In 2007, Mia Henderson was 18 and she was ready to go to college. She had a dream of becoming a doctor and possibly even moving back home to the Navajo Reservation where she grew up to work with her community. In the year between her junior and senior years in high school, Mia participated in a summer program at the University of Arizona. She and 24 other students from around the state worked 40 hours a week for seven weeks on research projects. Mia did her project on the genetics of albinism within Native American populations. She did that at 16 years old, and she got accolades for that work. So it wasn't really a surprise when Mia was given scholarships to go to college. One of the scholarships was a merit-based scholarship from the tribe, the Chief Manuelito Scholarship. It covered $7,000 a year for all four years. It was named for Chief Manuelito, who was a 19th century leader who encouraged the Diné people to seek education and then use their education to protect their culture and their people. Mia went to the University of Arizona in August of 2007 and was enrolled in the Native American First Year Scholar Program. This program is designed to help with retention and also helps students adjust to life at the university. It also allows the students to stay connected to their culture while they're away from their families because the 50 or so students in the program each year live in the same dorm and they participate in various activities together. 
Not all of the students in this program are Diné, but due to the proximity to the Navajo Reservation, a lot of them are. At the time Mia went to the University of Arizona, only 18% of adults on the Navajo Reservation held a four-year degree, and the national average is 24%. This program is helping students start off on solid footing and giving them a better chance at completing their degree program. Mia's parents were both educators, and they did have degrees, so she wasn't a first-generation university student like some of the other scholars were. When Mia got to the university and got to her dorm in mid-August 2007, she met her roommate, Galareka Harrison. The two had a lot in common. Both were raised on the Navajo Reservation, though they were a good two hours apart, so they didn't know each other before this. They were both into sports. Mia had been the captain of her softball team in high school, and Galareka ran track. They were also both used to excelling at whatever they took on. Mia and Galareka even had similar career goals. Mia wanted to be a doctor, and Galareka planned to be a pharmacist. They even both grew up in very religious households, with Mia's family being devout Catholics and Galareka's family belonging to the Native American church. For those who are unaware, the Native American church blends traditional Native American beliefs with Christianity. With so much in common and both being ready for a new adventure, you would think the two would get along well. Instead, things went south quickly. Mia had originally been very excited to have her new roommate, and even asked her family to pick up some gifts from the reservation to give to Galareka. But about a week later, on August 28th, Mia went to the University of Arizona campus police to turn Galareka in for theft. She said that Galareka had stolen her social security card and her cat card. And the cat card is the university-issued all-purpose identification card. It works like an ID card, and it works like a debit card, and it just works for everything around campus. Mia said she knew Galareka took the items because she saw Galareka's wallet on her desk in the dorm room they shared, and the cards were sticking out. Galareka hadn't even hidden this very well. And then Mia found that a $500 check from her bank account had been cashed, and she believed Galareka was the one who had done that. On the 29th, which was the next day, the campus police officer interviewed Galareka, and she admitted to all of it. She said she had taken Mia's card, and she used it to make purchases at the campus bookstore. She said she actually stole more checks than just the one, and had two other checks that she hadn't cashed, but she did write them out for a total of $3,000. Galareka then confessed up to stealing from another student as well named Annalisa. Annalisa was in a study group with Galareka and Mia on August 27th. She went back to her dorm room afterwards and realized her wallet was missing from a zipped pocket in her backpack. Then, Several hours later, around 2 a.m., Annalisa woke up to a phone call from a woman claiming to be from Wells Fargo Bank 
which is the same bank that Annalisa used. The woman said there was some issue with Annalisa's account and they needed some of her banking information to clear it up. Annalisa was groggy with sleep, but she still felt like there was something just not right here. So she told the woman, call back during the day. And then when Annalisa woke up completely, she was glad she didn't turn any information over because she realized she had never given the bank her phone number at the dorm. They wouldn't have known to reach her there. Wells Fargo would have called a different number. When the woman didn't call back during the day, Annalisa was even more sure that it was a scam, likely related to her missing wallet. So Annalisa also went to the campus police to report her wallet missing and the phone call, and this was the same day Mia had gone to the police. And now it seems like case closed on both because Galareca confessed. She even brought the officer to her dorm room and gave him the items she had taken and some of the items she had purchased with the money she took. The campus police then returned the wallet to Annalisa and took all of the stuff. The campus police then returned the items to the two young women stolen from. Mia was, obviously, very upset. And so was Annalisa, but Annalisa didn't have to live in the same room with Galareca. So Mia asked the university to move Galareca out of their shared dorm room. The university denied this request. It seems like they may have mentioned moving Mia instead, which actually seems pretty unfair since she wasn't the one who did anything wrong. Galareca was also not arrested or charged immediately. The reason given was that an arrest starts the clock for bringing charges, and they didn't want to do that until they were sure they had the evidence they needed. That makes sense, but they had her confession. They had her giving them the stolen items, so I'm not sure what they were looking for at this point. Regardless, Galareca stayed in that dorm room, and Mia opted to find somewhere else to stay for a few days, at least to cool down while they figured out what to do next. She likely hoped and probably even expected the university to arrest Galareca and move her out of the dorm at some point. I'm sure things were not looking great for Galareca at that point when, within her first week of school, she was pegged as a thief by two students. That study group the three were in together was mandatory. As part of the scholar program they were in, and they had a lot of other social interactions as being part of this program. Under any circumstances, it can be hard to integrate into a new social group, and Galareca was already being shunned by some of the students. Due to her own actions, to be sure, but that didn't necessarily make it easier on Galareca. Plus, we have criminal charges hanging over her head. For Labor Day weekend, which is the first weekend in September and just days after she confessed to campus police, Galareca went home for the long holiday weekend. She didn't tell her family that anything was wrong at school, even though everything was wrong. And it wasn't just the theft and possible charges. It's the reason for the thefts. Galareca had gone to the University of Arizona with the understanding 
she had a full-ride scholarship. But that was a misunderstanding. She had a full scholarship for tuition. It didn't cover food, and it didn't cover books. So Galareka showed up with about $200 for the entire semester. And have you bought a college textbook? That's not going far. When she realized the issue, Galareka went to student services and asked for help. And according to her, they couldn't help her. Or at least whatever they could do wasn't going to happen soon enough. So Galareka had taken the card and the check to pay for some expenses she couldn't cover herself. Galareka didn't mention any of this to her family, not just that she was caught stealing, but also that she needed money. We can only speculate as to why she didn't bring up the money issues with them before she resorted to stealing. The most likely explanation is that she knew her family couldn't do anything about it. They didn't have the money to give her. And with Galareka away with her family for the weekend, Mia ended up going back to the dorm room. And then on Tuesday, September 7th, 2007, Galareka arrived back at the university after her weekend away. So now we have the two young women back in that dorm room together for the first time since about a week earlier when Mia turned her in. That same day, Mia found out more issues with Galareka. It's not clear what these issues were, but it sounds like more theft. Or Mia had figured out the extent of the theft because she wrote to a friend on MySpace saying, quote, I've had more problems surface today with my roommate. Geez, she almost sucked my purse dry. So we definitely know Mia didn't move back in because things had smoothed over. Mia was saying here that more problems had actually surfaced, and they had only been at school for two and a half weeks. Several hours after that comment on MySpace, around 5.45 in the morning on Wednesday, September 5th, Students in the dorm were awakened by screams from Galareka. She was in the hallway, hysterically sobbing and bleeding from multiple wounds. Most were superficial, but she did have a deep gash to her leg. When the University of Arizona police and first responders arrived, Galareka was taken to the ambulance. Inside the dorm room, they found Mia on her bed with significantly more wounds than Galareka had, more in number and much more severe. She was so critically wounded that they rushed her to the ambulance, carrying her out using her bedsheet. Galareka and Mia were taken to the hospital where Galareka was treated, but Mia was pronounced dead at only 18 years old. She had left home for the first time less than three weeks before. Two young women in a dorm together, one injured and one dead. What happened here? When the university detectives went to Galareka's hospital room to try to answer that question, they read her the Miranda warning, and she said she understood her rights, but she agreed to talk. Galareka said that a man had broken into the room overnight and attacked both of them. 
She said she did not know who the man was, but he had a knife and he ordered Mia to kill Galareca, but Mia refused, and the man then attacked her, her as in Mia. When Galareca tried to intervene, he turned on her, and that's how she got injured. She ran into the hallway screaming for help. However, none of the people who ran to the hallway when they heard the screams saw a man run out. So Galareca told the detectives that he must have gone out through the window while she was in the hallway. The story did not make any sense, and they told her as much. They told her they weren't buying it. And not to mention, Galareca had already told two of the ER workers that Mia had attacked her. There was no evidence of a third person in the room, and they told her, just tell the truth. So now we get story number two. Galareca dropped the strange man fiction and admitted that it was just her and Mia in the room. And that appears to be the end of the truth. Galareca tried to do one of the most epic rewriting of histories ever. She said that she had actually never stolen from Mia. It was the other way around. Mia was stealing from Galareca in secret. Galareca couldn't prove it, but Mia had taken $900 from her. Mia then made Galareca use Mia's cat card and the cash from the forged check at gunpoint and then forced her to confess to then set her up for this. Where did Mia get a gun? Who knows? Why did she go along with it? Who knows? Why did she confess? When she talked to the police, Mia wasn't there. She wasn't being held at gunpoint. Therefore, she could have told the truth and gotten protection. Why didn't she do that? Who knows? The story doesn't make sense. But let's keep going. Galareca said that Mia started taunting her that morning before anyone got hurt. So we're talking 5, 5.30 in the morning. According to Galareca, Mia told her she was going to jail and that she would never graduate. And then Mia attacked Galareca with the knife. Mia cut her a few times and managed to get the deeper cut into Galareca's leg before Galareca got the knife back and turned on Mia and then stabbed Mia three times. The detectives told her that didn't happen because Mia had been stabbed a dozen times because that's what it looked like to them at the time. The autopsy would show it was actually twice as many wounds as that. Mia had actually been stabbed 14 times in the back and nine times elsewhere. But regardless of these inconsistencies in the details, Galareca kept insisting that Mia attacked her first. But then she slipped up. One of the detectives asked her if Mia was lying face down when Galareca attacked her, and Galareca said she was just lying there. So she admitted Mia was in her bed. So how did she attack her first? if she was in her bed. So now the story's going to change again. Galareca said Mia was asleep, and Galareca was just up thinking about what Mia had said to her before and what she had done to her. So the argument didn't happen right before the stabbing. At some point, they had it, and then Mia went to sleep. Galareca said she was angry and pulled out the knife. She walked over to Mia's bed, but before she did anything, Mia woke up, got out of bed, got the knife off of Galareca, and attacked. All of that in a split second and immediately after waking up. 
Galareka pushed Mia back onto the bed, got the knife from her, and then stabbed her in the bed. So yes, she was in the bed, but she got up and attacked her and then was back in the bed. The stories Galareka told just seemed like a changing lie to get the knife out of her hand first. But there were some statements in there where it sounds like Galareka got very close to telling the truth. One time, in answering a question about why she did it, Galareka said she wanted Mia to feel what she felt. Not she was protecting herself. She wanted Mia to feel what she felt. She also made a comment that she stood there thinking and thinking and thinking prior to approaching Mia with the knife. That sounds a lot like deliberation, and not to mention these changing stories. So Galareka was arrested, and she was charged with first-degree murder, but she kept insisting it was self-defense. Mia attacked first. But there were some additional clues pointing to this being premeditated murder and not self-defense, not even a heat-of-the-moment attack. The murder weapon was left at the scene, and the police found a receipt for it. Galareka had purchased it on her way back to campus after Labor Day weekend. It was bought hours before the attack, so she just so happened to buy a knife hours before it was used to kill someone. Just a coincidence. I think what is more damning here, though, is that they found a suicide note in the room. I did air quotes when I said suicide note, but you can't see them because this is a podcast. You you know I know how this works, right? Anyway, they found a quote-unquote suicide note in the room, and it was also a confession letter. The note was written as though Mia was the author. Spoiler, she wasn't. In the note, it says the first week of college was a mess. It says, quote, I grew up in a horrible environment. My parents didn't teach me wrong from right. It went on to say that Galaraco was a nice enough girl and Mia couldn't take how much Galareka's family loved her. It said Mia's mind was focused on money, and she stole from Galareka and from Annalisa. She said she threatened to kill Galareka's family if Galareka told on her. This letter, which, yes, it continues, said that Mia couldn't change what she did to make Galareka out to be a thief and a horrible roommate, but that she was neither of those things. Mia spent the whole weekend thinking about ending her life. She didn't know how to tell her parents what happened, and she felt lost and crazy. She felt like a nobody while Galareka was well-liked. Now, this note was written by Galareka, pretending to be Mia, and she had obviously prepared it ahead of time. The theory was that Galareka planned to make Mia's death look like a suicide, and this was the note left behind. It cleared Galareka from both the murder and the thefts. But Mia, who had some defensive wounds, had woken up either right before or right as Galareka tried to stab her. So there was a bit more of a fight than she expected, and Galareka stabbed Mia far too many times to pass it off as a suicide, including several wounds to her back. So Galareka decided to stab herself, trying to pass it off as some stranger attack, and then later as Mia attacking her first. But she hadn't gotten rid of the note. 
So the state was charging this as a premeditated murder. If buying a knife could be explained away somehow, going to the library several hours before the stabbing to write a fake suicide note could not be argued away. There is no benign explanation for that. This case was moving forward to trial, though Galareca's attorneys did not want it held in the area. The questionnaire filled out by prospective jurors showed that a third of them already thought Galareca was guilty based on the news coverage. News coverage that was fairly extensive, even though I cannot find a single news broadcast still online for help with the name pronunciation. However, that is a 2021 problem. In 2007, it was everywhere. And that extensive coverage had swayed public opinion. There were additional jurors who said they would take into account whether the defendant testifies or not as evidence of guilt, which we're not supposed to do. So when you add those with the ones who already thought she was guilty, the jury pool was just not big enough. But the court disagreed and denied the motion. They also denied a motion to exclude the statements Galareca had made to the police while in the hospital. Those statements are where we get all these changing stories. The defense argued the voluntary nature of them, but the police had read Galareca her Miranda warning. They asked about her comfort and pain levels, and they allowed her a break during the questioning to use the bathroom and get a drink. The judge saw no reason to exclude the statements or to see them as coerced. So the trial proceeded with all of the evidence we already went over. The defense strategy was to focus on the premeditated part of the murder charge. They didn't deny that Galareca stabbed Mia. They just brought into question the exact circumstances. This wouldn't be a straight self-defense case, though. Galareca didn't try to justify any of the evidence. She didn't take the stand at all, in fact, which was probably for the best, but still a dice roll in this situation. Galareca's defense was, okay, it happened, but it didn't happen the way the state says it did. And then they presented, honestly, very little to back that up. There were no other witnesses to the incident, and Galareca was not taking the stand, so the defense called no witnesses. And this is where I remind myself that it isn't the defense's job to prove innocence. It is the state's job to prove guilt. I find myself fighting with shifting the burden to the defense here because, frankly, they're just not required to prove anything, but it's hard for my brain to accept them just saying, eh, that's not what happened, but not say what did happen instead when Galareca's sitting right there and could explain it. They poked holes in the state's theory, which was, I accept, all they really needed to do. The defense provided the bulk of their case in the closing argument, saying that the jury would see that Galareca was not guilty of premeditated murder after they considered all of the evidence. She was a naive and scared 18-year-old away from her home for the first time. She had found herself in a situation where she was being excluded from her social circle and scared about being prosecuted, and she was in over her head. They argued that the state picked and chose from Galareca's various statements to build a narrative, which, to be fair, is exactly what they did, but they didn't put those words in her mouth. And even in context, I have to say they didn't look good, but I will agree they chose the pieces they felt fit the theory of the crime. 
Now, the defense did propose an alternative scenario to the jury that also fit with the evidence according to them. What if Galarecca had decided to threaten Mia with the knife to stop her from pressing charges? Not hurt her or kill her, but just scare her. But then things escalated, and it was actually a heat-of-the-moment murder, not premeditated. They basically said this scenario is just as reasonable and in line with the evidence as the premeditated scenario is. And that probably would have been more persuasive to the jury if Galarecca had taken the stand and said that is what happened. But that's not what the defense was doing here. They weren't telling the jury this is what happened. They were saying maybe this is how it happened. It is reasonable to believe it happened this way. And if it's reasonable to believe that Galarecca only wanted to threaten Mia with the knife, then it's not premeditated murder. If I was on this jury, I wouldn't buy this. I don't think heat of the moment is consistent with the evidence. Even if we take the knife out of it, she wrote that fake note. You don't need a fake note for someone who is still going to be alive the next day. And let's not forget that in one of Galarecca's stories, which is in line with the blood evidence, Mia was in bed when she was attacked. Why was she in bed at 5.45 a.m.? Probably because she was asleep. How do you threaten someone when the other person isn't even awake to know they're being threatened? I think this state scenario makes the most sense. Galarecca went to try to stage a suicide. Mia woke up and fought back. After Galarecca saw that she wouldn't be able to pass this off as a suicide, she then self-injured and screamed for help. And while I don't agree with the defense and would have found Galarecca guilty if I was on the jury, I do see why this appeared to be the best approach with the case they had. They were trying to keep an 18-year-old from going to prison for the rest of her life. That is what they were doing here and they were doing the best they could with the information they had, which wasn't the whole story which we're going to get into in the appeals. And since I said appeals, I've already given away the next part of the story. Galarecca was found guilty of first-degree murder. She was found guilty of taking the identity of another and three counts of forgery. After this verdict, journalists noted that there were two sobbing families in the halls of the courthouse— as we know, there are no winners in court. The winner is, we hope, the law. But for people, no one wins. We're looking at the hopes and the dreams of two 18-year-olds and the love their families had for them. And we can see how many people lost, not just this court case, but the day Galarecca picked up that knife. Now, under Arizona law, Galarecca did have a shot at getting a sentence that would include a chance at parole. At the sentencing hearing, Mia Henderson and Galarecca Harrison's families both spoke. Mia's younger siblings submitted their statements on video, and they expressed what the loss of their big sister meant to them. And her parents asked that Galarecca never be released. Galarecca's family also gave emotional statements asking for the opposite. With her father switching between his native Navajo and English, in an attempt to find the words he needed to express everything he had to say. He 
needed to convince the judge to give Galarecka a chance at life outside of a prison one day, to convince her to not lock up his daughter and throw away the key. And when given the chance to speak for herself, Galarecka spoke so softly that people in the courtroom could not hear her. But the judge did and said that she had asked for forgiveness. Forgiveness is often not the business of the courts, and the judge gave Galarecka the maximum, a life sentence without the possibility of parole. In the minute ruling issued later that day, the judge explained why she felt a life without parole sentence was fitting. She said that Galarecka had not suffered from any mental health condition to explain what happened. She didn't express true remorse for her actions, and she planned the murder over the course of a couple of days, even though there were other solutions to her issues. Galarecka had also been raised in a stable home with no abuse and had been taught right from wrong. The judge felt that Galarecka remained a long-term risk to society because there was nothing that explained the murder or her lack of remorse for it. There were just no significant mitigating factors here. And these words will become key in the appeal. When Galarecka appealed, she claimed a number of trial errors. They were all denied. However, her claim pertaining to ineffective assistance of counsel did get traction. Galarecka said her attorneys did not properly investigate her background, which would have revealed a lot of information, a lot of issues that could have been brought up both at trial and at sentencing. It's important to note here that Galarecka and her family did not tell the attorneys about these things that we're going into now. The attorneys were led to believe that Galarecka had a fantastic childhood with no issues and a bright future ahead. They also didn't look into it. Instead, they trusted what they were hearing. Basically, even after Mia's murder, Galarecka continued lying about what was really going on, this time to her attorneys, who I'm sure explained to her how important it was to tell them about any of these mitigating factors. Galarecka did not. One lie that she kept going was she never told her attorneys that she didn't have a full-ride scholarship. In fact, she told them she did. So they didn't know that Galarecka was under this extreme financial stress at the time of the murder. They didn't subpoena her school records, which would have revealed this, but they didn't ask for them because they didn't think they needed them. School had been in session for two or three weeks at the time. They seemed irrelevant. And they would have been irrelevant if Galarecka had told the truth. So even after Mia's murder, Galarecka is more concerned about keeping up appearances and not disappointing people than she is with avoiding going to prison for the rest of her life. And if I sound a little agitated, it's because I have teenage children and I know the barriers in their thought process. And it's just frustrating to see it play out in a situation where this is the rest of her life. She also didn't tell her attorneys that she had turned to taking diet pills and drinking energy drinks so she wouldn't feel hungry, so she wouldn't have to eat because she couldn't afford food. 
this was also likely an exacerbation of an existing eating disorder. In an attempt to establish any psychiatric explanation for Galarecka's actions, her trial attorneys did bring in a psychiatrist to evaluate her, and she hid these things from him. But he wouldn't have to rely on her narrative if the attorneys had given him Galarecka's medical records, which they didn't because they never acquired them. If they had, so much of this would have unraveled. They would have seen that Galarecka actually did have a history of mental illness, regardless of what she reported. In her teens, she had been diagnosed with depressive disorder and anxiety. She ended up being treated for extreme anxiety after witnessing a particularly violent incident between her parents. During the domestic dispute, her mother stabbed herself. I haven't seen any more details on this incident other than it happened in 2005 when Galarecka was 16 years old. She witnessed it and she had to seek professional help afterwards. In this appeal, the psychiatrist who spoke with Galarecka before trial and submitted a pre-sentencing report to the court said now that the report was misleading because he lacked this background information. He didn't know about the depressive disorder or the anxiety. He didn't know she grew up impoverished with eight people in a 500-square-foot home. He didn't know about the abuse between her parents or towards her and her siblings. He didn't know about the diet pills, the eating, or the extreme financial distress. He didn't know. She went to the university to ask for help with her financial situation, and nothing was done. He didn't know any of that. He and Galarecka's attorneys believed the story they were told about her growing up in an idyllic and traditional big, stable family environment. What everyone thought, what everyone was told, was that Galarecka was a bright and well-behaved teen who, out of nowhere, stole large amounts of money and then killed her roommate. That's what it looked like, and that's what the judge was concerned about and why she thought Galarecka was a ongoing risk to society. But in looking at the full picture over the course of her appeal, the psychiatrist believed that Galarecka was actually nearing a psychotic break at the time of the murder. And if that had been known, she may have been convicted of or able to plead out to a lesser offense like second-degree murder. Knowing all of this and then looking at that fake suicide note she wrote for Mia, she really gave herself away in there. The expressions of jealousy as she claimed Mia felt towards her because of her close-knit family, it was probably the other way around. The hopelessness, the feelings of being an outsider, and the suicidal thoughts fit Galarecka, not Mia. She wrote that letter as though Mia wrote it, but she put her own feelings into it. It's hard to fault the attorneys too much for believing the story they were told about Galarecka's life because they heard it from her and they heard it from her family. Why go fishing for mitigating circumstances that multiple people are telling you don't exist? And for that reason, because it was reasonable for them to believe their client and her family, Galarecka was not given a new trial based on ineffective assistance of counsel. However, the appellate court did give her a new sentencing hearing because the judge who sentenced her to life in prison explicitly said the decision would have been different if there were signs of mental illness 
or abuse in her background, and there were. The state did appeal this decision, saying that if what her attorneys did was acceptable for the trial, it should have been acceptable for the sentencing, saying it was fine in one instance and ineffective assistance of counsel in the other, sounds like a contradictory ruling. But in the end, about five years after being sentenced to life in prison, Galareka Harrison was given a new sentencing hearing. She was now sentenced to life with parole eligibility after 25 years. She will be eligible in 2032 when she's around 42 years old. Galareka has had a number of infractions while in prison, with all but one of them being classified as minor. And it's frankly not that hard to get an infraction in prison. It's not a free and understanding environment. But these do impact parole board decisions. So if she hopes to be released, I expect we will see fewer and fewer infractions in the next decade as she both matures and can set her sights at eventually being outside prison walls. For Mia Henderson's family, their daughter, who will forever be 18, this new sentencing hearing came with a heavy burden. They were again called to stand in court to put into words the loss of a child. Her mother spoke about how they had burned all of Mia's belongings after her death in line with their Navajo traditions, except for a small pair of infant shoes that Mia had worn, something they just couldn't bear to part with. And prior to handing down this lighter sentence, the judge reminded everyone that the sentence does not reflect the value of the life lost. The chance at parole was about Galareka, not about Mia. The impact of what Galareka did was immense. There is no way to fully right that wrong. But a judge's job in sentencing is so often to balance justice with mercy. And it's not a job I envy. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. 